Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Mm. <laughs> and maybe you should, you know, take it to heart instead of yelling at us. Yeah, check it or wreck it, Mackin. Holy shit. Check it or wreck it. What is that? That's not a phrase. No, Use it or lose it. That. Check, check it or... Check, check yourself or wreck yourself? Oh, that's sure. Check, check yourself or... before you uh, wreck yourself. I'm just shortening the thing. I'm just making it yeah. cooler. You're just innovating. You're innovating with phraseology. I get I one job it. in software, and I got to start uh, ideating and that synergizing does make sense. everywhere Did you I go. get a big, long sheet of um, acronyms and shit that you have to internalize? No, that literally. Was, it, yeah. When I started working in tech, that was uh, Dave. Shout outs to Dave, uh, Aaron. When I was oh, working yeah. at, uh, at Xerxes, that was like the first thing they did is they gave me a double-sided like sheet of acronyms and technical terms that I would have to learn. And he would like he was joking with me. He's like, there's going to be a test at the end of the week. And Oh, God. Yeah. Have you guys tech. seen the very recent obsession of mine is the TikToks where like very young, probably like 22, like pretty recently graduated people uh probably like still gen z uh are like doing tiktoks where it's like a day in the life of a tiktok employee and they're like they're tiktoks bringing us back into the office we're going through the and it's like i wake up at this time i get to the office at this time grab a donut down in the lobby uh go back up do a little bit of work decide it's time for a snack before lunch so i grab some nuts from the free nut machine in the lobby of tiktok Hmm. And, and it's just like a whole day of just like very clearly 45 minutes of work maybe an hour of meetings and then collecting assorted snacks and stuff just from like all over this probably 20 floor office just like i'm going to the the sushi room uh for a a second lunch uh as my first lunch was in the burrito room and now i'm going to the the nap spa and it's just like that kind of shit it's like that's probably not what they actually do all day like they the tiktok employees probably do like actually a good amount of work because it's a you know, uh, it depends uh, on what department you're really in, yeah. successful tech company. Yeah. But like, it's clearly just for like TikTok. It's like, it's like a field trip every day in this office. I don't know why I brought this up, but that my is last a, office a only had a fainting couch. We now have this six is like a fun, chairs. It's like a comedy bit, like a five minute stand up bit without any punchline. It's just like, Hey, have you guys ever noticed? There's really the nothing with, funny about it. <laughs> it's like, TikTok yeah, that shit sucks. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty weird. It's probably TikTok doing propaganda to get their employment numbers Could up. Could be. That's I, definitely I did, what I it did is. see one that was somebody uh, somebody working abroad in Belgium, I think it was. And it was like, yeah. yeah, I get up, I do two hours of work at starting at around 7.30. And then I go to get breakfast with some friends. And then before I head back to the <laughs> office, I grab lunch. And uh, after lunch, but before heading back, I, I get myself an espresso. And then I decide maybe it's actually time to just knock off for the rest of the day. So I go read at the local park. And then by 3.30, I'm back yeah. home having, you know, an eat-in dinner with friends and then in the evening i you know smoke on the patio and i go to bed at 7 30 the difference really there fun. is that those are that's just europeans like that that's what that's what i'm saying they're full of shit people in belgium are like the belgium oh, tourism bureau must be yeah must have a healthy tiktok uh, budget yeah it's it's always really fun to see like the the way that 
a sort of like a social media trope, like the rise and grinder will develop and then be almost immediately co-opted by corporatism. But like in these sort of like slant, sort of creepy, uncanny ways where it's like, I can see what you're doing, but now you're doing it under the auspices of like supporting a, a corporation or something. Um, yeah. It's it's almost and then they try to do the thing where they go the other way, right? Where like they invent their own sort of like memes and tropes and then sort of like reverse engineer them into the public. That's always fun. That's I, I not a bit either. It's that, just horrifying. <laughs> I do actually think that there there probably is a larger likelihood that these aren't like sponsored by the companies. That like if you work at TikTok, you probably just show you work at TikTok because it's cool. For the yeah, age well, group and, paying and I mean, that's, to your that's that the next there, step, right? right? Is that there's going to be a breakdown between sponsored content and non-sponsored content because it's all the same. The, because yeah. like those TikTok employees have have drank the Kool Aid to the point where they don't even know that they're corporate mascots. They just think their life is cool and they want to share it using their friend TikTok. And TikTok takes it all the way to the bank. You know, I'm saying we Damn. have to burn down the TikTok offices, Jason. If you need a, if you need a. a a segue here uh, uh you could you could try using um uh speaking of uh people being extremely weird on social media apps a uh, an adaptation of a joyce carol Oates short story yeah uh, thank you that was so funny that uh we we came out of the movie theater and i was like you know i didn't give uh i guess i wasn't expecting it to be like this i just didn't give uh joyce carol Oates enough credit and uh oh, jason yeah. was like he was like oh i've never read anything by her i'm like oh neither have i i just uh followed oh, her really? on twitter briefly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She, I mean, yeah, she is a very acclaimed. I mean, that's the funny part yeah, about her Twitter yeah. presence is like she is very clearly kind of a, a nut on Twitter and also one of the most accomplished writers right, right. of the the twentieth yeah. century. You know, quite quite uh, well known for works like the short story upon which today's film is based. Uh, thank you so yes. much for listening to Try Love. This is a literal roundtable podcast about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Go to trilon.org for tickets. Follow us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. Follow the Trilon themselves at Trilon Cinema across whatever social media you can find them on. My name is Jason Daphnis. I've been trying to paint this house for three years, and it's still not painted. And you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Just let me stew in my own juice. I'm Harry Mackin, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. Hmm. Uh, my name is Aaron, and I'm a disgrace, but a lot of laughs. And you can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. Fourth member of the cast and quad ball beater Cody Narvison is on assignment Scott. in Maryland. Uh, I'll go say he's a assignment. I, I, he's, he's a beater uh, <laughs> of a kind. He's on assignment in Maryland. Go, Monarchs. Uh, for right now, though, I have to let Aaron take this. Oh, no, no, no. I should I should do my plug. Um, Nick Cage National Treasure is coming to a close, the series at the Trilon, following a bunch of Nick Cage's uh, early, mid, and late career, uh, some of his most iconic roles. That is ending at the end of August with Mandy. Uh, and if you're listening to this at release, you can still see Wild at Heart one last time. But if you're not, you missed it, buddy. Uh, but then there, after that, there is Lucretia Martel, uh, the series, uh, The Rare Perfection, I think it's called La, Cien La Cienega, and, or Cienega, I'm not exact. Seth called me out on the pronunciation of that once, and I still have not felt comfortable pronouncing it. When we were in, in LA, life. right? We it was, it was Cien La Cienega uh, Boulevard, right? In well, LA, and then he's we like, no, it's La Cienega. And I'm like, that's not what the Proud family taught yeah. me. There's a character named La Cienega <laughs> on that show. Anyway, and, and Seth, <laughs> yeah. Seth speaks pretty fluent Spanish, and his family is, is Mexican, so he can totally get our ass yes. for that. What, and are, yes. the, what are the chances that? that his pronunciation correction is now being misrepresented? Uh, zero. Like you know what I mean? Like hundred and ten percent. He has drilled into my brain. Okay, so now two different. One, yeah. Okay. He's, have, he's holding his head in his hands right now. At least <laughs> one he podcast host tells the truth, podcast. and the other always yeah. lies. 
uh, find your way through the maze. Um, now that's uh, La Cienega, which I think it's got the accent mark on it. So I'm going to say that and Headless Woman playing as part of the Lucretia Martel series. And then after that, we're cracking open the Disney vault at the Trilon, a uh, bunch Ooh. of the older um, and less seen, less screened Disney films. I don't still still wonder how John managed to pull that one off programming that, but that's playing in September. So check uh, Trilon.org or even the show notes to this episode to get tickets to those. Yeah. <sighs> uh, quick, and, quick aside. If you don't don't go to the Walt Disney um, set. You do need to go to a movie before that set at the Trilon so that you can see the Snow White um, preview that they have pulled up for before the movie starts. Because they get Walt Disney and he like he looks and speaks like um, Robert De Niro, and he's describing all of the Seven Dwarves, and he's just like this this. Sourpuss is grumpy, the woman ne- hater. And he ne- just like goes down the line like that. And it's Jeez. like he is, is uh damn. He's not literally unfiltered. Smoking. Yeah. Walt he's not Disney. literally smoking a cigar, but like figuratively, he is very much smoking a cigar during that part. He has, it it he has, really rocks. He has never never more has the connection between Andrew Ryan and Walt Disney been more apparent yes. than in this preview. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yeah, any, anyway, that is uh, that is absolutely true. Check out a movie before September, and you'll probably see that preview. It's a lot of fun at the Trilon. Uh, for right now, we actually have a movie to talk about. This one, which is going to be introduced by Aaron himself. Yes, that's me. Uh, we are talking about Smooth Talk, 1985 film, uh, currently playing at the Trilon. Uh, not as part of a series, but kind of, I think, very uh, probably intentionally and nicely kind of playing alongside Wild at Heart. Uh, at the trial on there. 1985 film directed by Joyce Chopra, uh, as mentioned before, based on the Joyce Carol Oates short story, Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? Uh, stars Laura Dern uh, as young 15-year-old Connie Wyatt, uh, not old enough to drive herself uh, and at home during summer break before her sophomore year of high school begins. Uh, she's restless and anxious uh, to get away from her family and to spend more time hanging out at the mall uh, and hanging out at the beach with her friends, um, largely uh, in an attempt to meet and kind of flirt with a lot of the young uh, high school boys. Uh, unbeknownst to Connie, an older man named Arnold Friend, literally a dot friend, uh, played here extremely creepily by Treat Williams, uh, has been spying on her after she catches his attention. And one day he pays her a visit when she is all alone. Uh, also worth noting in the cast are the members of Connie's family, uh, her mother, played by Mary Kay Place, uh, her father, played by the band's Levon Helm, Jason, woo. give me a woo, okay, woo. Uh, and her sister June, uh, played by Elizabeth Barrage. Uh, the film won the Grand Jury, Pri- Grand Jury Prize, is the correct way to pronounce that, uh, in the dramatic category at the 1986 Sundance Festival, but I think has... Uh, kind of gone largely, uh, it's largely been like underappreciated and I think ignored since then, but, uh, playing now at the trial on and, uh, yeah, happy to, happy to chat about it. Me too. Um, this movie has been so underserved and so under attended that you can't even find the soundtrack anywhere on the internet. I don't know what I'm going to use as the outro music to this because I, I want to use that really pumping like eighties song that plays when things get intense and hot and heavy when she's in the car with, Frank or whoever it is, one of the guys that she picks up at the bar. One of those guys. And, and that's a, like a really intense song. I want to use it as the outro. Cannot find that anywhere. Don't even know what the name of it is. But anyway, um, I think that a really good place to start with this is going to be because there is obviously the scene which takes up like the final third of the movie that is like the real linchpin of the movie where things really formalize and crystallize and you start to like, I don't know, it was it was a bit of a left turn. But then thinking back and, and anybody who's seen it will know what I'm talking about. Hopefully you've seen it if you're listening. Um, but 
I think it's important to talk about how it gets to that point too, like the first two thirds of the movie and how it like only in retrospect for me, at least like actually the pieces added up to what we ended up seeing at the end, even though in the moment it kind of feels a bit like a left turn. Um, Harry, what did you think about that? Uh, you know, first two thirds versus final. Yeah, third thing? I think that's a really, really great way to start this conversation. Right. And I think that it kind of belies what um, Aaron was talking about, uh, about the way that I think this movie has been sort of underserved and uh, overlooked, maybe because people don't really expect it to be what it ends up being. Right. Or like, certainly I didn't know a lot about this movie going into it. And I saw the, the trailers and the previews and it looked like a thriller, but there's something about very specifically coming of age stories about women who are exploring and awakening to their sexuality that are often so punitive toward the women, even when they're well-meaning in the sort of liberal sense that I came to this movie expecting this to be another one of those, right? Especially the fact that it was set in the 1980s and the first two thirds of this movie very much play with your expectations, in my opinion, almost deliberately. I mean, I, I can't, I don't know if it's deliberate or not, right? But they, make you sympathize with the verbally, emotionally, and later physically abusive mother just enough that you think the movie might be setting up a redemption arc for her, right? Uh, They make you um, sympathize with the uh, verbally and emotionally abusive sister just enough that you think that maybe this is going to be the sort of movie where Laura Dern's character has to learn to sort of meet her family in the middle and sort of has to acknowledge her own feelings as wrongdoings the way that they clearly want her to. Um, Those are the sort of psychological stakes that are set up here. And I was very, very impressed that this movie ends up being much more on the side of Laura Dern's character um, and not sort of like acquiescing to this idea that her feelings or the way that she's acting out because of the way she's been treated are wrong, right? I think that especially in the final third, this becomes something else entirely, something much more sinister and sad, wherein it is revealed that instead of uh, Laura Dern's character having to sort of like um internalize her family's message a little bit, it demonstrates how holy she actually has, right? And how the way that her family and her friends and her society really have treated her have sort of like really set her up to be victimized um, because of what she has internalized about who she is and what she deserves and what she is capable of. Um, you see throughout the movie, these people are telling Laura Dern's character, basically, um, that she only has, I mean, there's the, the classic line right at the beginning of the movie. Um, I look into your eyes and all I see are trashy daydreams, right? Um, her mother says that to Connie, um, in like the first scene that they're introduced. And by the end of the movie, we understand that unfortunately, like Connie herself has internalized the things that she's been repeatedly told by everybody in her life, right? Like as much as she's acting out against them. And that leaves her without the sort of agency to be able to defend herself in a much like scarier situation. Um, and so it, it really is a fascinating movie that sort of appears to be something else until it becomes what it is. And then it uses the fact that it was trying to get you to believe it would be something else to sort of like 
make you less prepared for and therefore more attuned to the final message of the the film, in my opinion. What do you think about that, Jason? I I agree. It's like for the first two thirds, for the first hour, roughly, and uh, it it like there are very few. The only thing that's like surprised me about those parts was like Harry says, it does set up to almost tropish levels of like a girl, you know, almost coming of age. She is sort of um, uh, feels like life is passing her by. If she's not out getting attention and seeing boys and spending time with her friends at the mall, all this kind of stuff. And there's obviously that's a lot. A lot of that is fraught with like Reagan era, 1980s society generally. But to the point of the movies, like main plot there are very few sincere attempts um, by any characters to like cross the boundaries into like the other little worlds that, that other characters have created. There's uh, you know, um, uh, uh, Connie and her friends are sort of in their little sphere and she starts to become more detached from a couple of them as the plot goes on. Her mom obviously is in a different world. Her dad is sort of like, I mean, her, her, she's got, her mom's got that line during the painting scene where they're both painting and they're almost getting along. Uh, and her mom's like performing for it, almost like, you know, sort of about to chastise her and she drops the act and she's like, why can't I just say what I mean? Um, and then before like 15 seconds later, it sort of devolves back into like snippy remarks and they're at each other's throats a little bit again. And Connie leaves with her friends, the mall again. Uh, there's, she's almost got a thing with her dad in that first scene at night where he's like, you know, I ne- who thought I'd be here just smoking out on my porch. And, like it, it, it really is, uh, du- dude's rocking, but he, she's almost because in that moment, that's a great um, scene. I, I love that scene. It's a very good scene. Particularly in that moment, because Connie and her dad have like they're sort of equalizing over how they can't get through to the to to the, i forget uh places character's name but connie's mom they both can't like relate to her in that way connie because she feels like um her mom is impinging on her freedom as a as a teen and uh and levon helm her dad as not i guess maybe not explicitly not misogynistic but a pretty much misogynistic character um that is like also feels as though his wife is somehow like and and the women of the house are somehow like limiting his freedom as as men of the house like and he feels like he can only really uh have that sense of um uh ownership and uh like manifest destiny while he's sitting on his porch kind of thing like he's got his little moments of freedom so they bond over that that idea that they both got that they're both limited by this person in their life uh in that scene and it's like okay i see the pieces starting to move toward um you know almost uh maybe there's some sort of uh reclam not reclamation what's the term i'm thinking of some sort of like relation of these characters reconciliation a reconciliation where they can uh where you know she gets closer to her dad which helps her understand her mom or maybe she gets closer to her mom which helps her understand her dad which helps her understand her sister and you can start to see these pieces of like maybe an 80s teenage rom-com drama start to fall into place and of course it doesn't go there but i think it is really interesting how thoroughly like how well it does it builds up because what i've been describing is like it's not going to surprise many people that she's got this like uncomfortable relationship with her mom, that she's got maybe a more distanced uh, relationship with her dad. If you've never seen the movie before, those aren't like super striking. Um, she goes through like the ups and downs of teenage romance and drama. She has like a uh, kind of a scary close call with a boy in a parking garage that she then tries to get away from. And she has to walk all the way back home. There are like those moments that you would associate with a movie that has like more or less the setup of this. Um, it's steady. Only in retrospect, could I say like, 
oh, it's actually setting the stage for the movie to complicate things with the character of Arnold friend. Like you expect that she'll have a dangerous liaison with him of some kind that things will, you know, how it's going to end up on the other end. Obviously it doesn't go there. Um, the reason that I'm tiptoeing around actually talking about that final scene is because I know it's so fucking juicy and they're going to get a lot of meat out of it. So I don't want to like jump right into it, but I do think it's really important to talk about where the movie starts and like how it transitions yeah. to that because it, like I said, in the moment felt very like I'm in uncharted weird new territory. And then in re- only looking back on it, could I say like, actually the pieces were there very much to like by design uh, sort of fuck with me like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, in, in like, I don't want to mischaracterize, like this is a very nuanced, surprisingly subtle in some ways and profound movie throughout. Right. Like I think that the way we're characterizing it, both of us right now, Jason, is that like, it's like kind of a, an elaborate narrative trick, right? It's hmm. not like it, the story makes sense throughout. Uh, it's just that. And I left the, the theater feeling somewhat ashamed about my reaction. I think that like I was so prepared for this to go one way because of how I'd been sort of trained by my own media awareness, right? That the fact that it ended up becoming this like literal home invasion sort of like thriller uh, horror story. um, It, it, I feel it shouldn't have thrown me and I feel somewhat ashamed that it did. And I'm fascinated by the ways in which that movie like really set that up. Right. Like I think that like, for instance, from the very first scene, um, like Connie is abused. Her mother is abusive to her, like full stop. Um, she's terribly hateful to Connie. Um, we spend really like a lot of time and, uh, the movie with, with a lot of compassion and nuance unpacks the, the places where that abuse comes from. Right. And it'll be fascinating to talk about that from a character study perspective, but the movie sort of unequivocally does portray it as abuse, just complicated abuse that Connie, because of the fact that she's a 15 year old girl and she doesn't know how to advocate for herself, doesn't really know how to categorize as abuse and thinks that in fact, it must be something that she's sort of like affecting or bringing out of her mom, just as her mom thinks that's true as well. Um, And I think that the movie kind of wants us to feel that way too, right? It kind of wants us to be like, well, they must have a point. Like Connie must really be acting out. There must really be some sort of like imbalance here that that they can correct on both sides. And that doesn't end up being what the movie's statement is or what the movie thinks is right. In fact, it kind of like pointedly subverts that in the sense that Connie literally has a friend who gets knocked up. Um, and uh, uh, is that... Um, Terms of endearment, Aaron, that you're thinking of? Yes, but uh, yeah. To be clear, Aaron posted in the chat asking what yeah. the fuck that mother daughter run kind of covered is. I remember. I'm, think, I'm I remember, thinking of a point. I, I well, so yeah, little of that I, go ahead. Yeah, I'll, I'll yeah, I'll cut in here and I'll just say that I, I I think I do kind of disagree with your characterization of uh, Connie's mother's actions as abuse per se. I mean, I I do. Yes, of course. You know, her her slapping her daughter is of course physically abusive. I mean, um, in the but, in the first scene, she says, "I look into your eyes, and all I see are trashy daydreams." Can you? I mean, imagine a mom, the person who's yes. supposed to love you, the yes. person who's supposed to protect you, the person who's supposed to make you feel like you can be the person you want to be, says that to you, and we see the effect that has on Connie by the end of this movie. Like her mom asks her, "Like penny for your thoughts," and she says, "They're not worth it." Like I, that's I how Connie feels a, about herself. 
there's kind of a, a chicken or the egg thing there where I, I, I don't know if we're supposed to believe that the way that Connie's mother has been treating Connie resulted in Connie, you know, feeling the kind of the aimless way that she does at the beginning of this film and through most of this film, or if we're supposed to see that like Connie's mother has been kind of noticing and kind of been reacting to yes. Connie's change in temperament, which is right, due to right, a, a the, woman which is, no, I mean, being in high school. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I, that's I, that's, that's the, the nuance that I'm, I'm, I was talking about, right? Go ahead, Aaron. Sorry. I, not, not that like, yes, on paper, a lot of the things that are said back and forth are not abusive in some manner. Like, yeah, of course I, I'm not trying to like minimize that, but I, I do think that the, the, uh, the thing that we're supposed to get from it, it is kind of a somewhat, maybe unfortunately so, but a somewhat natural, I think, uh, relationship that a lot of daughters have with their mothers and vice versa um, at about this time in their lives, right? And I don't even think it's it's necessarily a, a gendered thing, right? I think that it kind of manifests itself in women differently than men. Um, but I, it, it feels very much like something like Terms of Endearment, which is very much about a daughter and her relationship to her mother and how that can be strained but loving at the same time. Um, I think that, that yes, again, it is, it is abusive, but I, I think we're supposed to kind of, uh, uh, and I think you would agree with this, kind of empathize with the way that all of these characters are acting yes. in certain mm-hmm. respects, even mm-hmm. if individual moments we might say, yeah, you probably shouldn't have acted like no, this. Right. Connie also maybe shouldn't be acting out in this specific right, manner. Right. There's so there's no so. like I was saying, there's there's no concession. There's no like attempt to bridge divides that is successful anyway. In, yeah, well, so I mean, it's like it's was, kind of impossible to do that. Yeah, that's that what age. that's what that I mean. Like, uh, yeah, that was the nuance I was talking about, right? Is that <laughs> yeah, yeah. like I said, I think from a character study perspective, we totally understand where both the mom and dad are coming from, right? I think there is a gendered element, there's also just a big class element, right? Like they are poor people. They are people who like didn't really expect to even be as successful as they are, and they're not that successful. Um, and Connie is young and very attractive and very intelligent, and is like kind of clearly made for better things, right? Like at least from the perspective of all of her parents, like everybody kind of knows, especially her sister, that like she has a better life waiting for her, quote unquote, because of who she is than her family probably did. And they resent her for that. And they, because of their resentment of her, they think that she has already sort of figured that out and is looking down on them as if she's better than them, as if she's too good for this little town and their little family. Um, And you can see how all of that jealousy and sadness and resentment coupled with the mom's fear that, that Connie is going to make a mistake like she made a mistake, right? And get impregnated too young or whatever. It creates this situation where like they are simultaneously trying to care for Connie, trying to protect her, but also they have this like very volatile uh, resentment, jealousy, and like hatred of her, which then gets all tangled up in the fact that like the way Connie is expressing herself is by being um, sort of like sexually provocative, right? Is about expressing her femininity and expressing her sexual awakening in ways that to their mind, to their eyes, especially the eyes of her mother and her sister are really flaunting that she has something that they don't have, right? And like that, that just exacerbates it so much more because Um, Connie becomes the character in their head that they think of her as, which really bears no relation to Connie, the person, right? Which is kind of the whole failure to reconcile that you were talking about, Jason, right? It's just like, there is such a huge division between these people's capacities to see each other for who they really are. 
um, that that there there can be no sort of like there there are a bunch of like really horrible um, close calls where Connie like tries so hard to reach out to um, her sister. Or her mom, you know, there's that whole big long speech where Connie's like, remember, like you used to play in the band and we would we would walk all the way home and you would rub my feet. You were the best sister. You were so nice. And Connie's sister literally calls her a bitch in that scene and is like, you're going to get it all. You're a little bitch. And I don't remember that. She just wholly rejects that narrative of Connie's life because it means more to her at that moment to portray Connie as this person who is going to have things that she will never have. Right. Um, and you can see the effect that that has on all of these characters. And that's why I was so, I I think that like the movie's ending in particular is so courageous because it doesn't accept the sort of like hallmark reconciliations that are secretly misogynistic that a lot of other movies do. Right. Um, that's, that's something that really interests me. Go ahead, Aaron. But while, while also like at least the first, well, the ending, but then mostly the first two thirds of that movie, very clearly playing with that language and that aesthetic and that style and those musical mm-hmm. cues cutting in, right? Um, right. I, kind of tying into some of that, a lot of what you said kind of earlier before your last point is just the idea that th- this is a film, I think, um, very concerned with with like gender roles in society and how those kind of transform as people age. Um, I mean, we, we, Jason mentioned the, the scene with, uh, the dude's rock scene of the, um, you know, uh, Connie's father kind of chilling out on the lawn. Right. And then there's kind of like a multifaceted aspect of that. Right. We're like, yeah, I mean, he, you know, he, he, he's kind of chilling out. He's enjoying his life. Like, yeah, he has his little lawn chair. He doesn't even need to bring in if he doesn't want to. Right. Mm. Um, but at the same time, we do understand kind of how that, that fits in, um, uh, with, with the other characters and specifically Connie's mother. Um, and that everybody is kind of playing the role, right? Her father goes to work. We see him, uh, when he's not, uh, when he's not, um, you know, driving somewhere or, uh, uh, coming home from work or at the, at the house, he is, he is at work. He's out of the shot. He's like generally kind of avoiding all of the little conflicts that Connie and her mother get up to and, and Connie and her sister as well. Um, and that does leave, uh, uh, in kind of a, you know, very 20th century fashion, uh, mid 20th century fashion, uh, Connie's mother to, yes, do all the stuff around the house, cook food, clean, um, do all those sorts of little, uh, uh, you know, assignments that, that were given to women uh, in this kind of a domestic situation, uh, you know, in the 20th century and has started to, to be morphed uh, since then, but, but still kind of lingers around uh, uh, quite a bit to this day. Right. And I, I do think that this also is a movie about, you know, uh, uh, the expectations that are put on young, attractive women like Connie, uh, and how society kind of funnels them, uh, uh, to be objectified in certain manners. Um, I think that is something that is, uh, a little more, uh, blatant, uh, in the short story, which is to be clear, a pretty, this, this film is, is there's like an extra scene at the end and there's extra scenes of Connie and her friend going to the mall. But, but it is like, pretty much this movie. The short story is pretty much this movie. This movie is pretty much the short story. Um, but one thing that is kind of shown a little bit more is the idea of music and the radio and this culture around going to the diner. Um, it, it is very much about how culture is specifically set up to kind of sell this young uh, kind of sexy feeling of rock and roll and living free mm-hmm. and how like, yes, there there is a way to live like that, but like 
society is also looking to do that. And there is a kind of a price to be paid, unfortunately, for that. Um, not, not, not that's Connie's fault, I don't think, right? I don't think the film is saying that, although that is a, a common criticism of this movie. Um, but like, yeah, there are like darker elements to society that are kind of packaged in nice little fun ways for people who are unaware of, of the darker side of them, I think. Yeah, I mean, I really like what you said about role consignment, right? I think that that's a through line that affects all of the characters in this movie. I mean, it's very clear from that first scene that you talked about, Jason, that like the dad never saw himself as a homeowner. He never saw himself as a father. And he's just sort of like living in a daze. And because he can't see that role for himself, he doesn't do it. He's a neglectful person, right? At one point, uh, the, the mother says to him, like, you are... Uh, apparently her father or like it was like um, rumor rumor has it that you're mm-hmm. her father or something like that. Um, whereas, you know, where does that leave the mother? And it, it really does. It leaves her in this very sort of like traditional mid-century um, idea that like now whoever you were, whatever person you were before you were a mom, that's all you are now. You are nothing else. You can't be like, and um that creates this resentment for her kids who whom she sees as sort of putting her in that role, right? And sort of like the way that she vents that um, frustration is she also consigns Connie to a role, right? Of the sort of like bratty, too good for this, stuck up, uh, like mall slut, basically, right? Like that's kind of the idea of this movie. And um, I think that like what it ends up really showing is the fact that like when you consign somebody to roles like that, like you don't know this, but you are affecting them, right? Like we see the ways in which Connie's psychology is affected by the way her family treats her and how she comes to value herself less and to value her own identity less. And that is extrapolated outward to really a lot of American society, right? Like, especially the radio stuff you talked about, especially the diner stuff you talked about. It's like, there is this overwhelming sense, It's especially at the end, that like, when um, Arnold Friend comes to visit, that Connie was, quote, unquote, like heavy scare quotes, asking for it, right? And like, that, that, oh, like, Arnold Friend is like the natural consequence of her lifestyle. And if she didn't want to go on a ride with Arnold Friend, why was she out acting like that, right? Like, he is sort of like this symbol of this person that is going to come take. And um, Connie, at the end of this movie, like, I think that she is doing that mental calculus, right? Like, she's like, she's considering calling the cops. She's considering, like, what is her family going to think? And, like, she is left defenseless to this predator because of the way that, You know, she has been set up to see herself and her own sort of identity. In effect, she sort of like who she really is becomes subsumed by this like mall slut symbolism of a person who has to do these things. And so she has to play that role at the end of this movie. Right. And it's it's really heartbreaking. Right. To see the Mm -hmm. ways in which like Connie is stripped of her agency and her power and even her own interiority and identity and agency in that way, right? Uh, And I think that, like, the movie does a really fascinating job of of showing all of the different ways in which um, society and the family structure and uh, the sort of, like, (laughs) existentialism about, like, people and what they want, how those all contribute to that fundamental social imbalance and how that paves a way for predators like Aaron Friend to manipulate, coerce, and... A uh, bit of a uh, 
get what he you does. Did you say Aaron's friend? Yeah, he did. Bit of I a, no, I didn't. Christ. Bit of a I said Arnold there. friend. You did not you say Aaron Arnold. Friend. You said Aaron friend. I, look, I'm not Aaron this friend. Arnold friend motherfucker who uses this <laughs> cheap smile as a way to be a creep. First of all, I don't even have a good smile. He's a lot more muscular than me. I don't own a nice car like that. <laughs> not, not, I know you're getting not there, man. You're, pretty, you're, getting, you're getting pretty buff. You're getting buff. Thank yeah. Well, I appreciate it. He, he, you know, he does the... I, this, this is how you know he's really scummy. Uh, as as a, a, a fellow who works out a good amount, you are allowed to, if you would like, while wearing a short sleeve button-up, roll up your cuff once okay you're leaving allowed it twice okay makes you look a little bit better he rolls that motherfucker up like four times that is just cheating okay that pushes up so far up the bicep that it's 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 absurd okay it's like uh it's like wearing a slightly too small t-shirt it's like everybody knows what you're doing okay that's not even gonna the minute you go to the bathroom it's gonna unroll it's not gonna look good uh, and I think we need to call him out for it. I'm not saying that's like the prime way that we can tell he's a creep. Yeah, or his, other his ways. one sin <laughs> yeah. is that he rolls his sleeves too like much. It. Arnold Friend canceled this guy. That that and the fact that he has his name uh, painted on the side of his card. Those are two big, strong indicators that he's not a good guy. I'm just going to say it. Those are the two strong indicators, just what you mean to say. Yes. Um, well, that was Aaron's workout corner, which I will have a timestamp for. Yes. Uh, but we have we have fully, like I think, gotten to a discussion, or at least we, we arrived at the front door of a discussion yeah, of the final, uh, what well. I'll call the final scene of this movie. It's not actually the final scene, but it's like the final lengthy scene. It is like 26 it's minutes, listener. Yeah, yeah it's no, full it's, pl- it's I like found a, it on YouTube yeah. from, from the moment that Aaron... Uh, <laughs> that Jesus Arnold Christ, man. <laughs> That Arnold friend starts to roll up on her. House. Just, just work past it. It's okay. I didn't say it. I didn't oh. say it. I uh, from the moment that he rolls up in her uh, driveway to like when she gets back, it's like twenty six and a half minutes. It is an incredibly long it's scene. A, it's an incredible scene. It is a very. It is, it is the reason the scene. It is the reason that movie yeah. exists. It is unbelievably it's good. So it, it it's so good the way that it like sinks in. Right. Where it, where it's like, I think we talked about this after the movie, Jason, but it was like, like about halfway through that scene, you realize that there's not enough time in the movie for it, the movie to be yeah. about anything else. And you realize like, like, oh, like we're in it. This is not like the beginning of a second act where she and Aaron, like Aaron friend, she and uh, <laughs> Arnold friend. Just say um, friend, just say friend, man. I'll, I'll mean, say a, I'll, I'll say, say a treat. friend and you can yeah. sort of like, uh, mm-hmm. you can sort We're of extrapolate. Anymore, that right. uh, but yeah. uh, you, it like, I think, I think for you it was when yeah. he was mimicking her movements, Jason, right? Mm-hmm. For me, I think it was a little bit later. I didn't catch on as fast, but it, you, you like all of a sudden you're like, Oh, this is what the whole movie was about yeah. was arriving at this scene. Yeah. Cause, and cause it really changes yeah. things. He appears earlier in the movie and it's like, not, it's not even ambiguously creepy how he's introduced. Like he does no, that pointing, like horror, for, pointing from like behind her thing. Yes. He's, he's out of frame or he's out of focus and he's pointing at her and she doesn't see him and he just holds it like real he's, sociopath. Yeah, he's behavior, like the obviously. fucking bad guy from cruising where it was like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is. I, it, it, he's go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like, it is, it, to be very clear, I mean, we've talked a lot about, like, the, the soap opera Hallmark movie stylings of this, which is unfair to the, I mean, this movie, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was, it's in the 80s. It was, it was, you know, going alongside the it time. Feels current, right? yeah. but, no, like, it was current, yeah. It looks uh, great. Like, we, we should say that, right? Yes. Like, especially and in it, the last scene, but, like, the whole movie is very well shot yeah. and very well edited. It fits in, despite some of the kind of tonal changes, which are very intentional, alongside those kind of films. Uh, I I mean, this movie does, though, straight up just use, even before that scene, uses 
the framing of, of a horror film in order to kind yes. of establish that the scene where she's like walking inside the diner and he's outside and there's like the, it's the very clear window. I mean, it's, it's absolutely out of a horror movie. The scene with the, it is. uh, the phone booth, straight mm-hmm. horror movie shit. Uh, you well, know, it's, it's, it's not that just a bit. Exactly. It's not that until he's introduced though. Like there are moments where it feels precarious because she's, you know, wearing something daring and risque out in public or like they're trying to cross the busy highway or they're going the somewhere they mall, shouldn't be. The two, little, the, the, two yeah. the two guys at the mall, like uh, it, it gets the like, hitchhiker, the, the guy who picks him up in the first scene too. I, I get, That's they, a weird scene. It is a weird scene. They yeah. almost play that for comedy because even the characters are they like, ah, you want like, to feel his bone th- or whatever. That's like, the whole thing about this uh, movie, right? Is the like the sort of excitement of coming of age, like always ways of butts yeah. against that that fear and that tension they do yeah. a really good job of of uh having those two intertwined for sure and then they've like finally allowed just let it all out of the barn in that final scene um like they're obviously like the the, the point of the movie or excuse me the point of the scene is to sort of like pull back the curtain on what the rest of the movie has been showing us and sort of like follow the natural conclusion in a very stylized way. There's a lot of weirdly heightened dialogue between these two characters. Um, like I just couldn't get over and this doesn't need to be our main discussion point, but what I came away with was like, there is a whole lot of attention to weird, maybe like non, non connected, like details from this scene. It feels almost like, like, like an impressionistic view of what maybe happened in this scene to me, like honestly it read like, uh, and I'll put a content warning at the top of this episode, but it read like a survivor's account of what might've happened during like an interaction like this during an incident. I mean, most, most obviously as an allusion to sexual assault, there's a scene where the car leaves and it's shown like amongst a backdrop of Pacific Northwestern pines. And then just like the scene sort of drifts to an end sort of thing. Um, but more broadly, more, uh, ambiguous, ambiguously, I think it's like Harry was saying about having like roles foisted upon yourself, having those like societal and cultural expectations of women of, uh, you know, of, of anybody thrown upon yourself. And she's like, sort of accepting of that, right? She is, in any case, she is a victim to what's happening in that final scene. I'm thinking of like, there's the numbers on the side of his car, which like you can intuit what they mean because it's like, he's a creepy guy and he's talked about like how old he is and how young she is. You can intuit that those are the name, excuse me, the ages of people he's slept with in it. Um, there's like Arnold getting violent with, uh, with Ellie in the car. There's his sweet coercion through the screen door, like a lot, but like very few concrete, like this plot beat led to this plot beat less to this plot beat. It just gets more and more lurid, more and more surreal as it goes on kind of in a dreamlike fashion. Right. Um, even his identity, excuse me, bus outside my door. Uh, even if his identity is kind of like bizarrely twisted, his name is like weirdly generic. He's weirdly generically good looks. Like he is an absolute living police sketch. Treat Williams. He, he exists to be like copied and pasted somewhere else. Um, uh, when she does finally get in the car with him, you get that scene of course, where it's just like, implied that they've had relations or that, you know, maybe he's raped her. I'm not sure, I guess. Uh, and then like the way that it sort of just ends in the same sort of uncomfortable wordless way where she returns her, she says, don't come back again. And then we're on with like the very final scene of the movie, the way that it's shot too is like 
unlike the rest of the movie, like Harry was saying, there are a couple of shots with Treat Williams just doing a weird little dance thing, mimicking her moves, and the camera starts to move in this weird snake-like fashion. There's that one that's in the trailer of like the Dutch tilt as she's walking out toward the door. She's kind of left her little hiding space. But these camera shots are held so long on any of these details that it feels like, oh, these are the things that they want to burn into your brain of this movie. This is These are supposed to be the lasting images, the like, uh, like last... Um, like tableaus, these gr- grotesque tableaus of the last scene of this movie will become your lasting memory of it. I'm, I'm a little bit at a loss for words for like how strongly it makes an impression with that. Like everything that's, and that's why I say like everything that led up to it, that 60 minutes that comes before it is just so essential for feeling the way you do about that final scene. I've been talking way too long after the, uh, Oscars music started playing here. So I'll let Harry take the mic from here. No, no, that's great. I I especially really love, and I think you hit upon the key idea of this scene is that it's like a survivor's recreation, right? And we absolutely need a trigger warning uh, probably at the top of this episode and in the description. But like, this is a very classic sort of instance of a predator gaslighting a victim, right? It's like, we we always uh, hear about how sexual assault victims are, are always so afraid to come forward. And it's because they can be manipulated with situations like this, right? Like immediately after the assault happens, Laura goes home and – or Laura, wow. Connie goes home and she tries to um, – explain what happened to her sister and she says like i don't even know if it happened i'm it's like i'm losing my mind right like whenever um friend is talking to her uh she's saying things like nobody talks like this what is going on it's surreal right he designed it that way i he he repeatedly sort of like alludes to these almost sort of like supernatural powers right he like dresses up like james dean because she has a poster of james dean in her room he has no real name he's just a friend he is a personification of everything that she apparently wants right or or from his perspective and he yeah, talks yeah. about like how he's always known her he knows her better than she knows herself he was he was always waiting for her they are meant to be together she exists to be his lover and he hers he is stripping her of her ability to design a counter narrative and he is doing that by exploiting the fact that other people have been doing that to her for so long that she's lost her agency right it's like all of the the narratives in this movie about who connie is they aren't the same and they come from very different places. And so it's not, it, there is more nuance than saying, like you had said, Aaron, that the mom is just abusive or that her family life is just dysfunctional or that society is just misogynistic. All of those things are true, but they're true in complicated ways, right? But they all have this effect, this sort of, um, Uh, cumulatory effect on Connie where she is so used to being stripped of her ability to have her own definition of the things that are happening to her that uh, Treat Williams' character friend is able to do it to her, right? Like, I think he is is able to to make her feel she has no choice and then to um, assault her that way. And it's, it's awful. It's awful, but like, it's it's a really important thing to show, right? Like it's a, it's a movie about how victims are created and where the blame falls, right? Um, in, a, in a really yeah. sobering way. And, and doing, it, doing it while 
very clearly not playing around with any sort of uh language of like realism at all right like the mm-hmm. the i think that one one thing that does uh separate this film from the short story is that the short story is very uh the tone definitely goes in that direction at the end uh, the 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 final scene in this film is like basically even the dialogue is like lifted almost word for word from the short story um and it works i think just as well there um but the the beginning of the the short story is uh very i'd say similar i mean obviously it escalates but it is uh the writing is is kind of similar in a way where that escalation feels natural i think one thing that the film maybe does better is it is it juxtaposes this final scene so glaringly uh compared to the tone from the rest of the film even some mm-hmm. of the more odder moments in the film right where the 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 three girls are are going through the mall and the two really creepy big guys uh, kind of step forward and, and clearly, you know, are, are kind of gross and, and violent and coercive in the same manner that, that a friend is. Um, I think that even those scenes still feel kind of grounded and realistic and are, are kind of using that uh, maybe melodramatic language of, of kind of a, a mother and daughter and these kind of domestic uh, uh, arguments and whatnot mm-hmm. um, that, that maybe are like, not exactly realism per se, but, but feel realistic enough that like the end of this film is like, you know, I don't think uh, a friend is even like a person really. I don't think the point is that he is a person. Yeah, he's like I don't the think devil, we're supposed right? to, yes, he is, he is a, a, a creature. He is a, he is a character. Uh, he is a vampire, right? You need to invite him into your home. He is um, sort of like a, I, like a mythological uh, a character uh, in a very weird way. Um, Mm -hmm. and like, I, it's, it's like, I don't know. I, I kind of didn't expect it to go there, but it's like, um, just really excellent given how it like is so different from, from what came before. Yeah. Well, it, it pulls it off so well. It pulls off that reframing, right? It's like, we've been talking about, it's not that there is a tonal shift. It's that you didn't realize what the tone was. And that maybe that's a part of the problem, right? Is that like, oh, like, I didn't know that this was a movie about uh, unambiguous sexual predator preying on a young woman. But hey, like, I guess that story has always been that, right? I guess that stories like this have always been about that. And I guess that's how I have to see it now, right? I I, I think it it does a really fabulous job of of that. Um, And just of... uh, being so unequivocal, I think that the big thing I was afraid of that I've been talking about before is that they were going to come up with some sort of like, like I, I was worried that I would leave the theater wondering if some people interpreted that Connie was asking for it. You know so, what I mean? Yeah. So here, here, here is the, the thing. And that I, I, I don't, uh, I, so two things, this, uh, this is going to feel like a cheap shot towards you and I don't intend it that way at all. But I did think quite a bit about our discussion from across 110th Street, specifically with the death of a certain character at the end of that film. Now, uh, to 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 uh, make my point as quickly as possible, I think that is quite a bit more arguable that that is what 110th Street is doing. But I do understand kind of how people could read that into this film, not as a that's a good reading of this film, but as like, that is a, a criticism of this film is like, this is a film about a young girl kind of learning not to do these things and to listen to her family. Cautionary um, tale, I don't yeah. agree with that reading. 
I don't agree with that reading, but I, I do think that there, I, frankly, I saw that criticism quite a bit that where this is a, a story of, of cause and effect, right? Um, I don't think uh, you needed to bring Pauline, up 110th Street to make this. Well, I, th- I was thinking about my take on this, and I thought like it is—it is a question of how uh, how kind of drama works, and to what degree drama uh, is mm-hmm. serving a point, and, and to what degree stories mm-hmm. specifically from the 20th century, uh, specifically like modern and postmodern stories, uh, uh, kind of deal with a world that has kind of moved beyond the kind of cause and effect. The kind of simple uh, uh, character flaw based uh, storytelling from example mythology, right? I mean, I, right. I called a friend really a mythological character before, um, but th- this is separate from mythology in that mythology is very much about characters having flaws and their actions kind of leading to some sort of end result, usually people dying or, or having sex with a family member, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and that's due to various flaws that they have, and, and like there are, there are morals there. There are reasons those stories are structured in that manner, right? I think this film is very distinctly about bad things happening to people regardless of the choices that they make. Mm-hmm. This is a world in which bad things happen to people due to the place, the role that they play in society. And sometimes, you know, uh, yeah, I Connie mean, did he, not go to this guy. This guy drove up to her house, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, I think that like that is very distinctly the point, and that is kind of my rebuttal to the people who are reading this as a misogynic, misogynistic cautionary tale about yeah, well, hanging out at burger joints. And, and goddamn, he threatens to burn her house down. Yeah, he, br- <laughs> yes. he brings a second guy yeah. that's going to hurt her family if she doesn't go along with what I mean. Like those threats of violence are not even really implied. Well, she's yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, at, at no, he just points, says them. Oh yeah, th- throughout that he, scene, she's the dead she's lady, like, the dead chicken lady down the street. Yeah, yeah. Remember throughout, her? yeah. Oh, yeah. throughout that scene, she, she's terrified. She's like clutching the phone, right. crying for her mom. She's terrified in her, on her couch. She's being ha- like I. I don't think that it's defensible to walk out of this movie and say like, oh, this is, this was a moral, moral tale. She should not have done that or she should have like known better. She should, yeah. should have acted. I don't like Aaron saying, I don't think that's defensible. I think in the broad scope of how people perceive and watch media and sort of the lens through which they've been accustomed to perceiving it. I can see people like I'm not surprised, well, like, I guess. And that's the point of the movie, right? Like, I think that that reframing is is like very pointedly what the movie is attempting to do. Right, I right. think it's, yeah. it's trying to show you that, like, maybe you do interpret media this way. Maybe you've been trained to. But like, look what happens when you do. Like, it, it that's what allows yeah. things like a friend to find the foothold that they need. Right. Mm-hmm. Is this misogyny that's that's baked into our society. This, um, this smooth talk. I, yeah, I totally. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree with and like your point about um, I think that it's uh, prescriptive versus descriptive fiction. Right. Is that like contemporary uh, modern and postmodern fiction is generally um, referred to as descriptive because it eschews very clear morals in favor of describing truths about the world as it exists right now. Um I be, I guess because I'm I'm basic. Uh, I always find lessons to learn from movies like this, right? Like it, that's not to say that this movie doesn't have a message that it's not trying to tell you something. But you're right that it's like it's not about like individual characters. It's much more complicated than that, right? It's about how the entire world conspires to become a place where things like this happen to Connie. And now we can start to examine all of the ways in which what happened to Connie was caused by everything and everyone around yeah. her, right? It, it, it is very much kind of like an existential, which feels weird to apply that to this movie, right? But I think like the, the, 
the tragedy at the core of this movie is that like these things happen to people like Connie and it's not about avoiding it's not about what actions you took that that led these things to, you know that it's caused not Connie's these fault which is so i mean specifically when talking about this kind of dark subject matter is uh unfortunately and very badly the language that gets used yeah. to talk to uh to people who had this kind of stuff happen to them is like mm-hmm. what she what are the causes what are the chain yes absolutely That's, what, are, what is the this chain is literally of like yeah this is the most effective sort of like rebuttal to the she was asking for it narrative that I've seen in a movie, right? Like it ultimately, that's kind of what it's all about. I would agree. Yeah, that, that, that seems, I guess that leads me to think like, what does the final, I mean, final, final scene, not, not treat Williams, um, you know, hounding her and, and sort of stalking her at her own home. But post that, after she gets back, after she's spoken to her dad and sort of like said, she wishes she'd come along. There's some, I'm not going to say ambivalence, but like, again, a little bit of ambiguity left in the character where she says, I'm not sh- like, I'm not sure I did that. And she talks to her sister about where she was and where she went. And she's like, maybe I didn't do that. It's okay. Um, you know, you want to dance and they sort of have a mild little tiny reconciliation over the course of the whole movie. You haven't had a, an inkling of it. And then finally they do the dance to the song that she's loved forever. What does, in your opinion, Harry, the ending of the movie say about how she's how Connie is dealing with these bad things that have been put upon her with this like role like the the externalization and obviously increasingly obvious nature of the role that she's been asked to play uh sort of the the things that have happened to her despite her um you know actions or lack thereof uh, what what does the ending say about how she's dealing with those things yeah man it's a pisser of an ending isn't it it's like just one more final twist of the knife it's it's really great that it sort of reflects the structure of the movie itself that you think and and the movie is structured like this is going to be a moment of relief for you at the end of this movie uh to sort of wrap things up uh and it's not i think that like the last scene in this movie is is maybe one of the most tragic right because it's like after connie is unambiguously victimized she she becomes a victim. She doesn't have a support network to talk to about it. Like that's and that's the thing that a friend counted on, right? Is that she wouldn't be able to report this crime because the people around her wouldn't believe her. That that the narrative mm-hmm. would get away from her, right? Her sister would never trust that a man came to her house and uh, assaulted her because oh she knew this guy and she did agree to go on the ride with him and. You know, like she was asking for it, the way she dresses, the way she goes out every night. I think that like by the end of this movie, like this is the movie telling us that like Connie has done the mental calculus and has arrived at the fact that her family will never trust or support her in this narrative. And so she has to she just has to take it right. Her family can only be what they were to her. They can't help her. They can't support her. She has to just dance with her sister. Right. And I think that like not to get too maudlin about it, but like, I think that this scene does a really good job of expanding the scope. At least it did for me, right? Where mm-hmm. it's like, oh, how many Connies are out there? How many Connies can't talk to their families about the things that happened to them because their families just wouldn't trust them, right? just wouldn't believe their version of events or whatever, right? And like, I think that that's like really the tragedy that this um, movie settles on mm-hmm. for me. Um, what, and I, it's brutal. Yeah. What, what did the ending do for, for you, Aaron? What, what, what did it leave you with? Um, I guess kind of two points. One, uh, I think I'm the, the, not to just keep bringing up short story. That's kind of a, 
cheat code here. But the the, the short story ends just on Connie basically getting into the car and it describes her like seeing uh, a kind of wide open planes behind a friend that she had never like paid attention. It's like the a, a new world kind of being brought to her doorstep, right? A kind mm-hmm. of a very uncomfortable dark one. Um, I think I maybe prefer that. Um, but I also do think that there is the film. I mean, the ending is like kind of unambiguously very depressing. Right. But I, I do think that there is a, uh, maybe, I mean, it's still, still reasonable to read this just very pessimistically, but there is kind of a hardening that, that she specifically in the very last scene, when she tells a friend, I don't want to see you around here anymore. There is a, a, uh, and part of it is, to, you know, to credit Laura Dern's performance, which I think is, is quite excellent. Uh, in this film, there is a um, like an assuredness there. Like you get the feeling, especially I think due to the kind of the largely symbolic nature of the scene that preceded it, you get the feeling that like he probably won't actually come around there again, right? Maybe that's because he's a fucking gross weirdo who just kind of yeah, he's going to add another number to his car and just go on to the yeah, next one. Yeah, for sure. yes, uh, but but you also get the feeling that like this experience has changed Connie. Uh, not like for the better, but that she she is more equipped to kind of deal with the shit moving forward at yeah. great expense, right? And in kind of the way that people shouldn't have to. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I, I mean, don't know. It's, it's a it's a literal coming of age story, right? It's oh, like yeah, for sure. This is this is about Connie becoming an adult, and at the end of this movie, she is an adult. And look at what she had to do to become an adult. Look at what she had to do to sort of understand the world the way an adult does, right? Look at what women have to give up in order to become women the way things are right now, right? It, it That's what I say about, like, the how many Connies are there. It really is, like, I wonder how many times, like, this has been the realization people have, have to have, right? Women have to have. I'm not ambivalent about how I feel about the movie. It was more like how – what – if we've just spent the whole movie talking about how like it's not a thing to like blame anywhere to put on Connie where for any of the like negative negativity that she's incurred over the movie, are we saying that like, despite that, despite the fact that she is not responsible for any of the like uh, negative occurrences that have happened to her, any of the stuff that's been put upon her in this movie that she is just being, just having to tamp it down, deal with it, maybe pretend either like she says that it didn't happen or pretend that it didn't affect her whenever she actually does talk. Are we talking like cyclically that we're assuming also like her mom probably had to deal with that, you know, coming of age that her older sister, if she hasn't already will have to. Not exactly. Right. But yeah, with, I mean, with the the mother, I mean, you do get the little bit of backstory that she very clearly Mm -hmm. got pregnant at a very young age. Mm -hmm. Right. And that, that, I mean, that, that is again, quite a bit different than what Connie goes through. Uh, But it is, I mean, it does recontextualize a lot of the like, overly protective or like, I don't even want to say controlling cause it's not that, but like the overly like critical ways that the Connie's mother speaks to Connie mm-hmm. is I think it does kind of, I think fill that in for the audience. Yeah, It flows uh, from self-loathing, right? Um, um, there are a I, lot of ways you can lose your innocence, I guess is what the film yeah, is sure. saying. I, uh, I really like that Jason. I think that like the, I think that the unfortunate, like almost not, I, it's like 90% bitter, 10% sweet, but like there is a strength at the end of this movie, right? That Aaron, you alluded to. Um, and I think it is just like, I, I, it's, it's like a shared understanding, right? That like, this didn't happen exactly to 
every yeah that everybody lost their innocence in some way or mm-hmm. another and everybody learned i think that like the the best reading i have or the most optimistic is that connie knew what that was right and and because she knew what that was even if she knows she can't talk about it it is going to inform her understanding of the world and so now she is a little bit more not self-assured but but self-actualized um it's just this terrible price that she had to pay for it, even though she was she was blameless, right? She mm-hmm. just will know that the ne- the world will never see it that way, and she has to see it that way, or she she sees it the way it is. She also knows that nobody else is ever going to see it that way, right? It's heartbreaking, but like there is there is a strength in the knowledge that Connie knows what happened to her, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something there, I guess. I, I guess I didn't read the ending as like, oh, she, now there's strength in this, like, or that she's got something to some, like, I, I don't want to even imply that like she's grown from the situation or anything, but that I, I guess I didn't read anything positive at all in that last scene that like, here's a story about the things that like change and silence women in particular in, in, in society. And on top of that, like the, even, even addressing it. Uh, becomes like a liability. Even addressing it just becomes one more way that they can that people can be vulnerable. I guess I, right. It, it it's like Aaron said, <laughs> unambiguously depressing. Um, I didn't. I guess I didn't even wasn't able to even see in in Connie's character uh, any shred of like this is like at least she's prepared now for something. You know, like it doesn't feel. Yeah, well, it feels I like mean, she's just been just been beaten down by the end. Reframe it another way. She saved her family's lives. I mean, that's true. Like didn't burn like down her house friend and, and her like that that was what that was like he brought another guy there so that he could go take connie away and assault her and if she refused him he was gonna hurt her family uh she's holding the walls up right that's the sort of recurring motif that she talks mm. about with her dad it's like hey it, it turns out that connie is doing something for this family right it turns out that that even her role and as thankless and as victim as it is serves this unfortunately important point right Mm. like she she is she is a contributor i guess you know i'm not saying that right but you know what i mean yeah yeah okay wow well um aaron you were right this is one of the most uncomfortable movies uh to to watch and it is proven to be one of the most uncomfortable movies to discuss as well i was even uncomfortable i mean we've talked about this a a bit or at least i've brought this up before but like i just really hate watching movies about high schoolers can't stand it feel uncomfortable (laughs) even if it's like a comedy just feel uncomfortable don't like it you tie that in with the last third of this oh man my my, i was just like just kind of sitting there just kind of wincing for about an hour and a half straight (laughs) yeah i mean like does it make it any better that this is like kind of a commentary on those movies or does that just make it worse uh, it, uh he can't see through I the mean, teenager of it all yeah yeah it uh man i don't know we we've yeah it, made, a, it makes stop. it worse john i uh mr moret i really love this film love that uh the choice in screening this please no more teenage movies <laughs> uh for me for none Except I will, for, of course, for this podcast. Oh, no. It, He's just announced a Disney Channel original movie series running for an entire year and a half. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, that would... That would uh, that would rock, honestly. Kill me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Xenon is equal. We can have some really fascinating discussions about the internalized misogyny of those movies. <laughs> because be, it is, it is and there. And we're so qualified to talk about it, right? Yeah. And I mean, Smart, House, Smart yeah. House is all about how your mom and your house are both uh, bitches, basically. So, yeah. <laughs> 
This has been a wonderful episode, I think, about this uh, strange, intense, wonderful movie. Uh, you should check it out if you can get a chance. I think it's already on the Criterion Collection, maybe. I think it's on the channel now as I'm speaking. But check it out. Find it where you can. Um, no game today because, again, uh, sports correspondent is on assignment in Maryland. Uh, He's Cody, out beating. We we. <clears throat> We miss you. We'll see you next time. Uh, but hey, come back to this feed for uh, more episodes, including I believe we're locked in for the final one in the Nick Cage National Treasure series. Uh, Mandy, go check that out. See it at the Trilon if you can. Go to Trilon.org for tickets for that. Uh, but after that, Lucretia Martel, Disney, and more stuff at the Trilon. Check it out. Oh, the Cult Film Collective is still currently accepting members, right, Harry? I think you became a member in the meantime yeah. here between episodes. Nice. Uh, so uh, how's it how's it panning out so far? What what? How do you feel? It's great. About it? I'm great. It's great. You you are great. Uh, and this has been the official review of the Cult Film Collective membership. Go to cultfilmcollective.org to catch up or come. I forget which one. Uh, just Google it. You'll find it out. Uh, but this has been one episode on of 187 of Trilove. Uh, find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. Find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema. Find me at Nintendoofus trying to think of other recommendations if you liked this episode perhaps you could listen to our episode on wanda <laughs> oh my uh, another God. episode of uh about people who are very, very qualified girl, to obviously. discuss yeah sure uh terms of but just you, yeah. you know terms of endearment you know whatever uh let's see what else do we have any other sure um, twitter handle bro uh, it's it's shiitake <laughs> harry um thanks for listening uh i'm harry uh, farewell. Uh, my name is Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at Arby Please. That's all I got. Short and to the point. All right. We don't have an outro quote because, again, Cody's gone. Do yeah, you guys want to what, just you want to talk about something? We can fade it out. Man, what, what, I love the playing? I love the little yeah. love the little details yeah, in that scene, like the fact that he keeps like he brought another dude and he just keeps shouting at that dude while he's being super nice to to Laura Dern's character. Just little yeah. details like that. It's so creepy. You know, it's like a David Lynch scene. The way he's like almost rolling over his car, he just keeps like sitting on it and plopping down and getting up and moving and sitting on it and stuff. Between this and Wild at Heart and Blue Velvet, just a big string of very horrifying uh, Laura Dern, uh, uh, you know, scenes. All before she was 20, as I understand. She was like, she was 18 in this, I think. In and of itself is pretty rough, right? Like to think about, it's almost like a meta commentary. It's like, hey, like we're going to make Laura Dern do like, the most demanding and hor- horrible roles. <laughs> Unfortunately, like, she, she, she she keeps delivering, you know? No, I mean, she's the best, right? She, oh, yeah, she's no, so yes. fucking good. <laughs> One of the best actors, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know. Wasn't she like 17 in Blue Velvet? I forget. Uh, I which came was, first? This was 85. Blue Velvet was after. I'm going to say that's 86. Blue Velvet was 86, so she was 86? 19. Oh, she was yeah. 19? Okay. But still, still, like, cool. yeah. Just remember don't... when we saw her script at uh, the Los Angeles Museum? I don't remember that, no. Well, you weren't there, but... Uh, mm. Yeah, I wasn't invited it to was that one. It was Laura Dern's annotated script of Blue Velvet, and she wrote all these notes in that were so good about how she was going to say the lines and stuff. Oh, the best. The GOAT. The Queen of the Trilon. For your consideration. Uh, she was in Fat Man and the Little Boy. Fat Man and Little Boy. Wait, so that... I don't know what that movie is. It could go too distinctly hilarious. Oh, I think you know. I think you know what it's about. Come on, don't play this. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna guess. Not gonna even wager a guess.
They're about bomb, World of Bombs yeah. World War II, friend. <laughs> Nagasaki and Hiroshima. That wasn't either of my guys. You think it's like a Takashi Katano, like, I've never hilarious madcap comedy about a fat dude and a little boy? <laughs> yeah. Hubert gave it one and a half stars, 48% on Rotten Tomatoes. Maybe this is the next, uh, maybe this is the next trial of uh, just real underdog that we end up loving, you know? Mm-hmm. That would be fun. Yeah, I don't know. Have we really have we really come out in defense of an underdog movie? I don't know Spring if that's Breakers. something we do. Spring Breakers, sure. Spring Breakers, sure, uh, sure. Me and Valley Girl, I guess. Not that Valley yeah. Girl is necessarily an underdog. There, then uh, there was a time that we punched movie. that we just punched down, like terms of endearment, where it's just yeah, this was a bad yeah, movie. Yeah, terms of I mean, that's kind of the exact opposite. Yeah. Uh, what, what aliens. Yeah. Right. No, I mean, uh, like that's that. There's something bold again, about the that. Again, the reverse. What? Yeah. Yeah.